0: Welcome to Rethink, the Future of Skilled Nursing, a podcast from Skilled Nursing News. I'm your host, Maggie Flynn. My guest today is Nico Gomez, the President and CEO of Care Providers Oklahoma. The state recently passed legislation that gives skilled nursing providers an increase in Medicaid funding tied to their improvement on various quality measures. It's not the first time Care Providers Oklahoma has tried to address the state's Medicaid shortfall, and I talked with Nico about what went differently this year and about what providers in other states can learn. I'd also like to thank our podcast sponsor today, PointClickCare. Success isn't just getting to PDPM. It's about being ready for what comes next. Learn how you can prepare to go confidently into quality-based care with PointClickCare. Nico, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on this episode of Rethink. I'm really excited
1: to have you. Well, Maggie, I appreciate the opportunity to visit.
0: Great. Thank you so much. So I wanted to talk about the recent legislation that was passed to bolster Medicaid reimbursement for skilled nursing facilities in Oklahoma. And I want to talk because there are some very interesting components to this legislation. You and I have spoken a little bit about this before, but for people in the audience who are not as familiar with the state of Oklahoma, can you talk about the Medicaid reimbursement landscape for SNFs in the state? prior to the passage of the Nursing Home Quality Assurance Initiative legislation.
1: Absolutely. And actually, Oklahoma has a familiar story. I had a chance to talk to a lot of colleagues across the country at various meetings, and we were all struggling with a declining Medicaid reimbursement rate at the state level. And Oklahoma was certainly no different. And as that substantial Medicaid uh, gap kept growing, we were starting to see homes close in our state, it was really difficult for our member facilities to really compete for employees when you have low unemployment and, you know, higher wage competition. And this was you know, starting to create an issue where we had to make some decisions about where are we going to, you know, we can no longer find savings, you know, within our current system. So we actually had to have an increase in Medicaid funding in order to be able to survive and take care of the seniors who were relying on our care.
0: And can you talk a little bit about some of the forces that led to the uh, Medicaid shortfall in Oklahoma? And also, can you just give a sense of the dollar amount of the gap between the cost of providing care for someone who's on Medicaid and the amount that Medicaid was actually paying?
1: Oklahoma, you know, was one of those states that, you know, historically low from a Medicaid rate standpoint uh, compared to other states. And so in 2017 and, and early 2018, We were sitting at about $146 a day, and that's, you know, when when our cost was, you know, it was about $20 uh, more than that. It was sitting around $166 a day, and that continued to strain. So to give you a little bit of history and context, you know, we didn't get here to this position overnight. There was a lot of issues that, you know, you can't really point your finger and say, well, that's to blame or that's to blame. It was just a combination of a lot of very difficult events from an economic standpoint. But if you go back almost 20 years to uh, 2000, 2001, the state of Oklahoma passed a, a provider fee. And when that provider fee was passed, we actually, in our in our daily rate at that time, was $90.49. Uh, but our cost was just under that. It was around uh, $89. So that was the last time we were at or above cost was really in state fiscal year 2001. And then each year after that, the gap kind of you know, we just kind of kept getting bigger, a couple dollars here, a couple dollars there. And then when we got to that recession back in 2007, 2008, when we really started to see a lot of pressure on the state Medicaid agency where they were going, we do not have state funding, we don't have federal funding. And then there was a little bit of federal, one-time federal relief. And so it really started to put pressure where they actually had to cut rates in state fiscal year 2010, and they cut rates for all providers three and a quarter percent. So at that time when, you know, so about 10 years later, our gap is now about, you know, $11, $12, somewhere around in that area. And it did continue to grow. So we kind of held on and said, you know, let's ha- see how long we can hang on. And, and if there's a recovery, then we can count on the state being able to, you know, help the industry, help our residents. But the gap over the last eight years continued to grow. And part of that was where you know maybe some years it was not a you know a bad year where we had to cut rates, and, you know maybe it was where the Medicaid agency said we have enough money to keep from cutting rates. Now we can't increase rates, but we can keep from cutting rates. Well, that doesn't really help, you know, providers, especially on the long-term care side, when we are so dependent on what Medicaid pays, but our costs you know did not go down or, or did not stay flat, our costs continue to rise, and so that gap between cost and reimbursement continued to grow to where it was, you know, more than twenty dollars again in state fiscal year seventeen. So at the end of twenty seventeen, our association, Care Providers Oklahoma, got together at a board retreat and we said, Medicaid reimbursement has to be the number one issue because if we don't fix that, there may not be a future for us being able to care for these, you know, fifteen, sixteen thousand Oklahomans who are who are counting on us take care of their loved ones, their seniors, individuals with disabilities. And so we actually went into that 2018 session looking to change the methodology. We thought, well, maybe we could change the methodology and get some reforms in there that really, really. So we looked to our state to the east, Arkansas, and kind of looked at their model because there was a more of an acuity-based model where ours is just basically a a per diem fee-for-service type system. And, well, I mean, I'll just take that back. With It's based on, you know, direct care spend. So there's a, we have a fairly unique methodology, about 70-30, or 70% depending on your direct care spend plus a base rate. And that's probably a whole time for another podcast just to get into that methodology. But we, we thought, well, maybe it's time to change the methodology to do something that's more acuity-based, build some reforms in, put a lot more transparency in that. And so we went into the 2018 session. And really kind of pushed that through. And it was, I think the idea was right, but the, the environment was wrong. And we didn't have a coalition. We didn't have support from other provider groups in the state. We didn't have any support from the advocates. And we basically just kind of kept running into a lot of difficulty in trying to get that to move forward. We kept telling a story about, you know, the cost gap and what that was creating. And we had these homes closing. You know, we closed uh, six facilities since 2017. And those were both urban and rural. And so as we kind of got through the end of that particular session in 2018, we did not get any change in methodology. We didn't get any reforms. You know, we were thankful because the legislature and the governor saw fit to give us a a roughly a $4 a day increase in the uh, daily rate that was going to be effective October 1 of 2018. And we're very thankful for that. You know, it it gave a little bit of relief, but it certainly wasn't, you know, when, when your gap was approaching 20 22 dollars, 4 dollars was just kind of, you know, was going to buy us time. And that's really kind of what it did. And so we got into a situation where why, you know, so now our our daily rates now up to about 150 dollars and you know, we're still kind of flat, we're not being able to keep up with the trend line on cost. And so last summer, we sat down and we said, "Okay, we still have the issue. We we still have a long-term issue that we don't if we don't fix, you know, the crisis is is going to continue. So, we had an opportunity to sit down with uh, Leading Age and some of the advocates in this area and go, you know, what kind of solution can we develop together that's actually going to number one, not, not just improve reimbursement, but move the needle on quality and help, in, you know, improve the quality of life for our residents and making sure that family members have some confidence that we're going to be able to deliver the care that we promised. And so last summer, we kind of started that conversation, and it, and it really kind of started to build to the fall, and we started to figure out, okay, here is a solution to the crisis that we have, and here's a way for us to, you know, we, we didn't have a funding solution, but we had the policy solution in which we all agreed there were some tweaks along the ways, but for the most part, the legislative language that this coalition of folks said, if we do this together with no changes, then we can, you know, that we can all support this. But as soon as one of those things change, then the coalition falls apart and momentum falls apart. And so, you know, we, we had to start early, get on a plan together, and then execute that plan through the legislative session. And so, and I know we'll get more into the details of what that looks like, but that was the history. I mean, that's where we were. We've we've kind of had this issue where we've had this con- Tremendous gap that has developed to a point where we had a crisis that was, that we were on the verge of, you know, seeing a lot more closures, a lot more jobs lost, and really a lot more care at risk for many of our seniors.
0: And it sounds like quite a delicate balancing act that was involved. And I do want to dig into how you were able to work with all of these different groups, especially because you mentioned that that was a change from 2018. Can you talk a bit about just the process that came around this time, um, how you manage working with all these different groups, and then how you all came to the different components that are in the, in the legislation that eventually passed?
1: Well, and I think that was a lesson we learned in that 2018 session is we weren't going to get that far by ourselves. And we had to develop a partnership and some trust, really, because these are not these are not groups that are traditionally, you know, hand in hand going in agreement on particular issues when it comes to how we care for our seniors. And it's not like we're always opposed, but it's just not it's just not a very common, you know, group. So and I'll, and I'll, let me just list them here. So it's Leading Age Oklahoma. It was then our Association Care Providers Oklahoma. It was the Oklahoma Nurses Association, Oklahoma Alliance on Aging, AARP Oklahoma. The State Long Term Care Ombudsman Program, the Oklahoma State Council on Aging, the Oklahoma Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, and the Oklahoma Silver Haired Legislature Alumni Association. So, very nine very distinct groups who all have—we're all trying to accomplish the same thing. We all want the greatest care possible for the people who need nursing home care. We wanted the best care possible, and. We were all looking at the same statistics that everybody else looks at, and you know our state ranked among the, you know, fifth worst in uh, life expectancy, forty-eighth uh, or worse in quality measures, and that's an important part of this reform. And you know our state had one of the lowest Medicaid rates in the country. And we thought, you know what, we've, we've got to do this better. We've got to figure out a way. Can we address all these issues? It's not an issue where, you know, you just have providers going to the legislature and say, hey, just give us more money because, hey, you're not paying us enough for cost. You really had to go in with a comprehensive reform that addressed the issues that all these distinct groups had. And so what I love about this and what I was, what I'm really proud of is, you know, the proposals brought forward. Are, I think we're provider-led. You know, we were at the table saying, "Hey, you know, we want to improve these quality metrics. We want to do these things. Here's how we think we can get there." And so we actually established a true quality pay-for-performance component based on four quality metrics, and they were improving the outcomes and rankings focused on pressure ulcers, uh, urinary tract infections, use of antipsychotic medications, and weight loss among nursing home residents. And and. So that's that's how kind of, we start there. Those are some of the worst ones, and so it, we built into a component to where, if a home improves from quarter to quarter, so let's just say each component says is a dollar is worth a dollar twenty five, and if they improve quarter to quarter, then they're eligible for that dollar twenty five in that following quarter, and so that's that's a you know a way for them to be rewarded for making sure that we're moving our quality metrics in the right direction. And I think if we do that, we're actually going to be actually improving just more than just those those particular quality metrics. And what was, you know, we don't want to be last in anything. You know, and as a matter of fact, we have a new governor comes in and part of his mantra is, you know, we want to be a top 10 state. And that's kind of was our focus. We want to be top 10. We don't want to be in the bottom 10 on the, on the things that you don't want to be known for. And so we wanted to put incentives for, you know, all the providers in the state to be able to say, yes, we agree. We want to focus on these particular issues and we want to improve them. And so those quality metrics will will be revisited every three years. And every three years, we may say, okay, we need to go work on something else, but create a baseline and create a way when you have marked improvement that you're going to be able to qualify for that pay for performance piece. The other kind of you know, if you get above the national average, then you automatically qualify for that. So, you know, that's, that was a critical part. We wanted to improve resident care and reduce staff turnover by increasing the direct care staffing ratio. And we did that right now. I think it's about 2.71, I believe. And, and so this October, it will go with a 2.9 hours per resident day. And that, excuse me, is an increase from 2.41 hours. So, significant increase in the amount of staff that we're going to say we're going to we're going to have these, this much direct care staff on the floor. And there's going to be some flexibility in that. So, on January one, they'll be able to go to instead of a shift based staffing, which is what we have today. If they, you know, are not having survey issues related to staffing, on January one, our homes are going to be able to use a 24 hour, you know, staffing period, so they have some flexibility and don't have to do shift-based. are also going to improve on residents' quality of life by increasing the personal leads allowance from $50 to $75 per month, and improve the safety and well-being of residents by increasing the mandatory Alzheimer's dementia training for all clinical staff to a minimum of four hours every year, and that's right now it's, it's one. We're also, as part of the, the whole reform bill, as we agreed that we want to Support the ombudsman program to increase, you know, resident protection and advocacy, and so part of the revenue will actually be designated to increase pay for five new employees or FTEs at the Oklahoma Department of Human Services. So all these things kind of maintain language that you know it's just it's provider accountability and transparency. So any new funds are encouraged to you know providers are going to invest in direct care staff, employee benefits, and training. You know, and and we believe it's going to change the way we take care of not only this generation of Oklahomans who are needing our care today, but for generations to come. The, the key for us is how can we maintain that momentum? But that's when you got that group together, we came to that type of reform and uh, we were able to, to, you know, we identified the crisis. This was the solution and there was no guarantee we were going to get it done because it, it was going to take funding to, to make that happen.
0: And I want to dig into that a little bit, Um, the connection between funding, particularly as it relates to Medicaid because Medicaid does cover the majority of patients in in nursing facilities across the country. I wanted to dig into that a little bit, just that impact that a gap in reimbursement of the type that Oklahoma had, what effect does that have on skilled nursing facilities and particularly on the quality of care?
1: Well, you know, before we got to this point, you know, we had a lot of movement in the market where you had older generations of owners that were selling, you know, some were closing, families were deciding not to pass on that particular business, you know, buildings were aging, a lot of them without mortgages. So it helped them to be able to survive that, that time when funding really was starting to be an issue. But those who stayed, you know, obviously worked hard to find efficiencies into the system to make sure that they were getting, uh, you know, the care that they Wanted to deliver, but it became a point where you know if we didn't find that that solution on the funding side, we was not sure how much longer they were going to be able to stay. And in Oklahoma is an independent owner state. We don't don't have a lot of you know we have some regional companies, but no national companies in our state. Now part of that may be related to tort reform and things of that nature. But when you have tort issues, and you have reimbursement issues. You know you have to have be a pretty hardy person to be operating in this state. So it was critical that, you know, we, so when you have that kind of reimbursement and you have that issue, it's obviously going to have an impact on the quality of care you have because your turnover numbers are high with staffing. Uh, You may not be able to compete for the quality of staff that you want. And all those kind of things really kind of put us into a, a really difficult situation.
0: And one of the one of the things that you tried to do in that situation was something that we covered on Skilled Nursing News a while back, the push to take part in the upper payment limit. And you and I spoke about this. It didn't end up working out the way that Care Providers Oklahoma had hoped. But what I wanted to dig into a little bit was, um, can you talk about just some of the lessons that you learned from that experience and how you brought that to bear in your push to get the Nursing Home Quality Assurance Initiative through?
1: Well, you know, one of the factors that I really haven't talked about, but when we talk about, you know, like surveying the environment in terms of what was going on at that particular time, in in 2018, there was a massive teacher walkout. There was a lot of issues. There was a lot of pressure on the state legislature to raise revenue, and, you know, historically, we, we saw a decline in our federal matching rate because Oklahoma, as an oil and gas state, you know, the federal matching rate is dependent upon – our states' per capita income compared to other states, and our per capita income was was strong, and our federal matching rate declined. So it can continue to be that perfect storm of issues where our federal funding was dropping, our state funding was dropping, and we had you know you had other you know higher ed and common ed and uh, transportation and corrections and everybody at the table with the handout saying we have never recovered from the recession. Help! 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 And we know we are our voice. And the voice of our residents was kind of getting lost. Nursing home finances just aren't in the forefront of, of public opinion. And so, so you saw this effort where we didn't feel like there was hope. You know, two or three years ago, I didn't, I don't think there was hope that we any opportunity to increase the Medicaid rate. And so we saw we so you, you get creative. And well, what are other states doing? Well, other states were looking at an upper payment limit program where they used these. You know, partnerships with local cities and communities, with hospitals, and in every state looks a little bit different. As you learn with, as I've learned with Medicaid, it's the only thing the same as the you know the first four letters. Actually, I mean, you know, it's just Medicaid, and Medicare. It's just, you know, all those kind of things. There, Medicaid, excuse me, is different from state to state. That's the point I was trying to make. Medicaid's different from state yeah. to state. And so, as you, as you kind of get in the situation, we were looking at other states and going, "Well, how are they solving some of these issues that we're facing?" And so, we've looked at the upper payment limit program as as a potential solution, where you had, you know, cities that actually own nursing homes as a way to help bolster the community's health care resources, keep access to quality nursing home care available in a way that they could provide the qualified state match uh, for the Medicaid program. And we thought, well, you know, we saw it work in other states. Oklahoma was a little bit different in the way we were structured. We didn't have that public hospital system that initially qualified, so you saw cities uh, buy these nursing homes. It was, you know, we went through two rounds of state plan amendments with the uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And as we kind of got to, you know, we got the denial, uh, you know, in January, and, and there was kind of no appetite. So we said, you know, we're going to put all our effort into working on this, you know, nursing home quality assurance initiative, and that's and that's kind of what we did. So right now, there's no push on the upper payment limit. You know, those, those there are cities that still own nursing homes, and there may be a future conversation, but right now, it doesn't seem like, there's an interest at the federal level to expand that program, even though we we feel like we got an argument to uh, qualify, uh, but CMS didn't see it that way.
0: So one thing I really want to make sure that I dig into is your pivot to to this nursing home quality assurance initiative legislation. You had to learn a lot, had to you know think quickly to deal with this, and I want to know when it comes to. Providers in other states, what would you tell them? What are your takeaways for them? And how would you advise them? As, as you mentioned, many states have similar challenges. So when you're looking at what you went through in Oklahoma, what would you want to make sure that your colleagues in other states know about and how should they proceed?
1: Well, I think the first part is is you have to understand and research and survey the environment that you're in. every state's dealing with different issues, although there may be some commonalities. There, you know there's different politics and different things going on. You know when we benefited by the legislature last year passing the largest tax increase in state history, uh, but that money wasn't guaranteed for us. Most of that, if not nearly all of it, went to education and other issues. And so we had to, you know, understand kind of what all the what all the pressures were on the legislative process and on the budget process. But we had to identify our crisis. So, I, I, you know, my suggestion that other states need to look at is understand the issues, but then identify the crisis, engage those constituents, you know, whether they're family or friends or neighbors or people who, you know, just want to help improve nursing home care in their state. Don't look to blame. You know, it's not a, you know, we didn't look for, you know, point to this group or point to that person or that organization and say, that's that's why we're here in this place. We didn't look for blame. We just looked for a way to solve the problem. And then kind of once we solved the problem, we build the coalition around it. And and in our case, we had to, you know, building the coalition and building the solution was kind of, you know, riding your bike while you were building it. We did it at the same time. And then once we kind of had that piece, We kind of built this, I mean, kind of, we built this army of advocates and there was another partnership organization called uh, the Oklahoma Health Action Network who was, you know, uh, did paid digital and they used that paid digital to kind of build this army of advocates and we had a, you know, very significant social media presence. So we leveraged social media to amplify the message because, you just can't have, you know, can't just storm the Capitol with hundreds and hundreds of people. It just doesn't work for us. So we had to build and amplify through the things that we could do. And right now, social media was the way to do that. And we told the story. We humanized it, made sure that people understood, here are the people who are living in our homes. And here's who we're trying to take care of. And that was the, the challenge that we, you know, wanted to make sure that people understood this was really about, you know, saving our seniors? Are we, are we, you know, making sure they get their fair share of Medicaid funding, make sure they get their fair share of the funding uh, that they worked so hard as, you know, throughout their careers, pay taxes and all those kinds of things to be able to make sure that they're well cared for in their senior years. And then we, you know, as we created the solution, you know, we didn't let up, we, we didn't let up till the end of May, whenever this bill was signed by the governor. You know, but the people we were working for, and I'm not talking about ownership. I'm talking people we were working for on the resident side. They were just too important. This issue was too important, and so, you know, my, my counsel to other states is, you know, if you boil it down to just a few, is is you have to really have a really good understanding of your environment. Test messages that are going to bring people to action. You know, build that coalition. Don't go on it alone. Build your army of advocates. And then be relentless with the legislature, not to the point where you're beating them up to, you know, in any kind of, you know, verbal assault of their – and, you know, it was very – it was a very kind push. And I say that because, you know, it's a lot of vitriol and a lot of these issues, and, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, we we can easily lose our temper on. But this is – this was an issue where we just kind of kept, you know, hey, asking the legislature – here's the crisis here's the solution will you please support it and we kind of kept continuing that message we had to have legislative champions and we had to build those relationships early on and we had we had great authors of this legislation who were who were seen as as leaders on this particular issue within their particular caucuses we had one no vote and every in this bill that had votes in you know <laughs> a dozen committees dozen floor votes we had one no vote and it was, it was a no vote in the Senate on the last day. And that was more of a protest vote to the Senate issue. Not had nothing to do with our bill. And so I'm proud of the fact that we, 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 we kept enough pressure. We kept the coalition together. We kept all these opportunities, you know, and focused on, you know, the, here's what you're going to be able to get with this in, in positive outcome. Now it's going to be up to us. And I think that's where the challenge is for us. You know, as we look forward to go, this is just kind of one-time funding. And I'm really excited because I think we're going to move the needle on these quality measures. And then when we move the needle on these quality measures, we're going to be able to demonstrate to future legislatures and future governors that when you appropriately fund the program and you have your incentives aligned correctly, you're actually going to improve the quality of care for our residents. And I'm really excited because I think that's going to make the argument for the future and making sure we don't get into the situation again.
0: Excellent. Well, Nico, thank you so much for making the time to explain this. Uh, Medicaid issues are a pretty widespread problem across the many different states in the country. And so I think for many providers, it'll be good for them to hear that you guys were able to hear the behind the scenes of how you were able to bring this legislation to bear. So thank you so much for joining me to talk
1: about this today. You're very welcome. I enjoy the time and, you know, feel free to check back with me over time and we'll tell you how we're doing.
0: All right. Sounds fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. For more news and insights on the skilled nursing news industry, subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters at skillednursingnews.com. I'm Maggie Flynn, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois.